So we know about defining moments. Moments in the lives of people that reveal their very nature or character or identity in some, in some very significant and undeniable ways. Let me give you two, uh, two insights into defining moments. March 29th, 1982. Does anybody know that date? Okay. 1982's NCAA championship game between the University of North Carolina Tar Heels and the Georgetown Hoyas. When a young freshman named Michael Jordan, with 16 seconds left in the final, hit a 16-foot jumper, and UNC wins by one point over Georgetown. And the rest is kind of history, right? A defining moment in a a young player's career. Uh, Another defining moment, June 18, 1940, Winston Churchill... May 10th, 1940, Hitler launches an offensive against Belgium, Luxembourg, Holland, and France. June 14th, Paris falls to Germany, to Hitler's regime. Four days later, Winston Churchill stands in front of the House of Commons in London and says these words at the end of his famous speech, The Finest Hour. The whole fury and might of the enemy must very soon be turned on us. Hitler knows that he will have to break us in this island or lose the war. If we can stand up to him, all Europe may be free and the life of the world may move forward into broad, sunlit uplands. But if we fail, then the whole world, including the United States, including all that we have known and cared for, will sink into the abyss of a new dark age made more sinister and perhaps more protracted by the lights of perverted science. Let us therefore brace ourselves to our duties and so bear ourselves that if the British Empire and its commonwealth last for a thousand years, men will still say, this was their finest hour. A defining moment for uh, a prime minister and for a nation that was under attack that shaped the course of history. In Exodus, we get to a defining moment for the God that the Israelites referred to, well, we don't really know how they referred to him in his original name because we don't actually know how it was pronounced, but I will use Yahweh tonight to describe that, but it's a defining moment. This is a, this is a, um, a story that, that shapes the character and the identity that reveals the very nature of who this God is that they worship. This God that we're sort of tracing through in this series, God's Yes, from creation up to the time of the sending of His Son. And this is a defining moment that is second in Scripture only to the cross of Jesus, And actually has a lot of parallels and similarities to what God does for us in and through the cross. Well, how do we know this is a defining moment? And we're going to focus in on Exodus 6, verses 3 through 9. If you've got your Bibles, you can open up to that text. Um, One of the reasons that we know is because laced throughout this short little section in the Exodus narrative is God continuing to say, I am the Lord, I am the Lord, I am the Lord. And what that says in the Hebrew is, is, I am Yahweh. I am, I am, I am, I am. And it's this self, uh, self-revelation of God in this text that actually shows us that what is about to take place is, is tied up intimately with who God is, with his character and his identity. You know, this name Yahweh is something that scholars have debated and will continue to debate, to debate for a long time. It's mysterious. We don't quite fully grasp what is meant to be communicated by this revelation of the divine name, both in Exodus 3 and then here again in Exodus 6. But we do know that in in many ways, what God is saying to his people by giving them this name is defined by the narrative that is taking place in these early chapters of the book of Exodus, by this great story, 
um, that, that reveals the nature of who God is and of what he's doing in the world. So this is a defining moment um, for Yahweh. It's a revealing moment. And it has a lot of significance for us. So you may think, well, is this just an academic kind of exercise in looking at the Old Testament? And actually, no, the question of who God is, what he's like, is actually one of the most important questions that you and I can answer in our lives. It shapes so much of who we are. Even though in a secular, secularized Western culture, the question who is God and what, he's, what is he like has somewhat been marginalized. It's almost passe. Like, let's get to the real questions of how do we solve global poverty? Or how do we build a just society? Or who am I going to marry? Or what vocation am I supposed to follow? Those are the questions where life really happens, right? So sometimes we take the question of who is God and what is he like and we put it sort of to the margins. That's just for the theologians to think about. It doesn't really impact the kind of real events of history and of life. But actually, it does. It's so much more significant than our culture gives it credit for. And we would say in the church, as part of this great story of God working in the world through his son Jesus, that we think this is the most important question that we could ever attempt to answer. And this text actually helps us begin to answer that incredibly important question of what God is like. We see something of God's nature in this text and in this whole Exodus narrative. We see something about his motivations and we see something about his end or his, his goal in why he does what he does as Yahweh. So verses 6 through 8, Exodus 6, this is the, the, the nature of God as Redeemer. There are seven promises in verses 6 through 8, each of which have God as their subject. He says, just to run through them quickly, I will bring, I will deliver, I will redeem, I will take, I will be your God, I will bring, and I will give again. I am Yahweh. This is what I'm going to do on your behalf. And what he's going to do is he's going to deliver them from the burdens of the Egyptians. I wanted to focus in on one of these words that's particularly defining for who God is. It's the first time, aside from Genesis 48, 16, where the word redeem comes up in the, in the scriptures. And it's used here in Exodus 6. He says, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. And then again, it's picked up in chapter 15, verse 13, where in the Song of Moses, Moses is reflecting on the great work that God has just done to deliver them from the people of Egypt. And he says, the people that you have redeemed. So what does it mean to be a redeemer? This is something really significant about who God is as I am or as Yahweh. You know, in that day and age, a redeemer was a member of, a wider, of the wider family group that was called upon to act on behalf of the honor of the family or on behalf of the family member that was in dire straits or in a situation of oppression or enslavement. So, for example, if somebody murdered your brother, it fell upon the Redeemer to go out and to find the perpetrator of the murder and to bring that perpetrator to justice to protect and to defend the honor of the family's name. Or in a similar way, if, if there was kind of a, you know, maybe... Uh, an, an uncle and a distant cousin that weren't really you know, holding up their end of the bargain in life and what they were supposed to do, and they, they fell into trouble, and, uh, and somebody was about to, to, to actually, um, they were about to have to sell a piece of land so that they could continue to live freely. It was the redeemer of the family that was called upon, usually a wealthier, or a better endowed individual of the family that was called upon to come 
and to buy the property from the potential buyer to keep it in the family to, to preserve the good things in the family. Or if that you know, distant uncle or cousin ended up finding themselves only to be able to, to sell themselves and to sell their services so that they could stay alive because of their debt to the creditors, to, um, then, it was, then it fell upon the Redeemer to go. And, and this is where we're more familiar with the idea of redeeming. In, in relation to slavery, that to go and to pay a price to redeem, to bring back this person from that place of dishonor, um, disrepute. All of this is to bring about, to preserve the honor of the family. And so this is the context within which this description of who God is as Redeemer comes to the foreground, that God um, is a God who, who like you know, a, a, a better endowed member of the family comes to the aid of those in his family who are in trouble or in oppression. Three things have to take place for, for this, this idea of redemption to, to, to be there. One is there has to be a family relationship. And it's interesting, in Exodus 4, verse 22, God calls Israel, my firstborn son. My firstborn son. There has to be a family relationship. There has to be a powerful intervention for redemption, for a redeemer to be present. We see that powerful intervention coming about, don't we, in the ten plagues that we read about or that we proclaimed in the psalm tonight from Psalm 105 that go on in chapters 7 through 11 to be detailed uh, one after another after another of God's powerful intervention and action on behalf of his firstborn son. And then we see that thirdly in an effective restoration. So it wasn't just a kind of Um, getting out from under captivity, but an effective restoration to a place of honor, a place of blessing. And in this, God rescues Israel, takes them through the Red Sea, and then marches them through the wilderness, and in spite of them, brings them into the land that he has promised for them, as he says he will do here in verse 8 of chapter 6. So you get all of these things present, that God, I am, Yahweh, is a redeeming God over his people, a God who comes to their aid and comes to their rescue, brings them out of a situation of oppression. Now, let me, let me say something about this in the context in which we find it. So if you go back to verse 23 of chapter 5, so basically Yahweh's come to Moses and said, hey Moses, I want you to go, set, I want you to, go to Pharaoh and tell him, you know, you, my people need to go free. And Moses is thinking to himself, you know what, Pharaoh's not going to be really excited about getting rid of his uh, slave workforce. You know, that's building all the bricks that make all the pyramids and all the, the wonderful buildings. So Moses comes up with five wonderful excuses about why he's not qualified for the task. And, and Yahweh says, no, well, Moses, I want you to do this. And, and I'm going to give you Aaron because you said I can't speak. I'm going to give you Aaron to speak on your behalf. And so in chapter 5, verse 1, Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh for the first time. And they're like, look, Pharaoh, Yahweh says, let my people go. So let us go into the wilderness to worship our God. And Pharaoh's like, you're crazy. I'm not going to let you go. And in fact, he starts to practice what a lot of oppressive regimes will practice. He kind of tightens the knot. And he says to the Israelites, you know, you still have to make as many bricks as you were making before these jokers came into my presence. But now I'm not going to give you any straw at the beginning of the day to make the bricks. So now you have to make, go out and find the straw and keep making the, the same amount of bricks. So they start to get really upset because this has obviously made their life much more difficult than it was before. And so the foremen of Israel who are overseeing the work crews get really mad. They go in and see Pharaoh and then they go to Moses and they say, what in the world are you doing? Who do you think you are? You've made our life incredibly difficult. 
And so in verse 23 of chapter 5, Moses, with that background, says to Yahweh, 22 and 23, why did you ever send me? Why did you ever send me? For ever since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he's done evil to this people, and you haven't delivered your people at all. So the background of the Redeemer redeeming his people is not one of tremendous, overwhelming, you know, honorable faith. But it's one of doubt and disbelief and discouragement. If you go to chapter 6, verse 9, the end of the section we're looking at, it says that Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So Moses, again, gives them this great promise, but they didn't listen. It was their backs were broken. But even after God begins to do great works in the plagues and starts to set them free, you go up to chapter 14 and you read this, right? As they're standing at the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army has come and they said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. What are you doing? God, the redeeming God, redeems us in spite of ourselves. This makes his redemption all the more glorious, all the more wonderful. If you think over to Romans 5, it says, you know, if even while we were enemies, Christ died for us. The reality that the nature of God as a redeemer is a nature of who he is that's independent, really, of our worthiness or of our... um, belief in his goodness and in his response. We see that all over in the Exodus narrative. We see it all over in the New Testament, and we see it all over in our lives today, don't we? We, like the the Israelites in Egypt, we we quickly doubt the goodness of God. We quickly doubt the, the power of God. We doubt the intentions of God. And yet God continues to redeem. So at this defining moment, we see that Yahweh is a God who is a redeemer. And let me just say, I don't know what your conception of God is. Um, Many of us have a conception of God that's something more like a taskmaster or an angry judge or a distant relative or Santa Claus or something, you know, like that that's just kind of a, 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 you know, a made-up version of who God might be. But this question is so critical and so important, and we see right here that God reveals himself, Yahweh, I am, as a God who redeems his people. That's really good news. That's really good news. And that he does that independently of you and of me and our worthiness of his redemption. So we see also the motivation of Yahweh. We see why he redeems. Look at verse 5 of chapter 6. He says, Moreover, I've heard the groaning of the people of Israel whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Why does he redeem? Well, we know obviously from what I just said that it's not, he doesn't redeem us because we're, we're worthy. He doesn't come to us because, man, we've really, you know, we've done it so well this time that God has something that he owes to give us. It's not that. But he redeems us firstly because he says, I've heard the groaning of my people. We don't want to overlook this. It's actually great to turn back to chapter 2 and, and listen to this ver- these verses at the end of chapter 2. During those days, Those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. 
Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. God knew. One of the reasons that we get from this text that our God acts in redemption is because God hears the groans of his people who cry out in oppression and slavery. God is a God who's moved by the groaning and the cries of his people. A God who responds to the cries of his people, the cries of those in bondage. And he knew. He knew. That's not just a kind of cognitive knowing, but it's a knowing to action. It's a knowing that says God is going to respond to those who are in bondage. And the second reason that he redeems, the the second aspect of the motivation, the why of Yahweh, is because he remembers his covenant with his people. We get that again and again. And and just to be clear, remembering isn't like, oh, like he forgot about it for 400 years and it just popped back into his head. That's not the way it works here. That's not what the word remember means. But the word remember means that it's a deliberate calling to mind of something with the intent to act. And God shows his, his commitment to his own word and his own promises in hearing the groans and the cries of the people of Israel and remembers his covenant to his people. It says that in verse 5, that he remembers my covenant. In verse 3, I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. I established my covenant with them to give them the land. So God remembers. He remembers what he's promised. These two things define God's response, his redeeming action. A God who, who identifies, understands, hears the groanings and the cries of his people. And a God who remembers his promises. And you might say, well, look, that's great for Israel. But didn't God have like a special relationship with Israel? And we, we kind of hit on this last week. Yeah, there's a particularity to the call of God in the Old Testament that God calls Israel. But there's also the reason for that call is a universal reason. He calls and blesses Israel so that he might bless the world. So that what he does here with Israel in remembering this covenant, remembering his pledge to his people, he then does, if we think about it in the Gospels, in John 3.16, a verse that most of you probably know, for God so what? So loved the world that he gave his one and only son. What we see in God's commitment and his covenant with Israel ultimately is fulfilled in God's giving of his son for the sake of the world. In God's covenant and faithfulness to his creation and to those of us who are made in his image, human beings, men and women, made in the image of God. He remembers and he acts finally and faithfully and fully to bring about a redemption for his people. And I want to say this as well about the groaning. Uh, this will connect with the last point, um, which we're about to come to. But the groaning, God, God hears the groans of his people. God is a God who's on the side of those who are oppressed. The redemption that he brings to Israel is a redemption that's political, that's economic, they were oppressed, that's social, and ultimately also that is spiritual. But it's not only one of those things, it's all of those things. And God hears the groans of those who are under oppression. And he responds. And he responds with a covenant faithfulness to his creation. 
You know, but God doesn't just know it as he knew it at the end of Exodus 2. It says, and God knows. But God enters into creation in the person of his son and becomes one who, like us, groans. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? One of the most beautiful things and pictures of a God who redeems, as we see it traced through the Old Testament and then into the New, into Jesus, is the fact that God not only hears the groans of those who suffer, but he is also identified with those who suffer and who groan. And so you think, well, now what does this have to do with me today, this week? Because we're often in that situation as a people who groan. We're often finding ourselves in situations that are far beyond our means and our capacity to handle, that are far beyond anything that we think is, 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 has hope for, for ending up in any good way. And so we groan, and we groan to a God who hears the groans of his people and who identifies with those in a way that's far beyond anything that we could ever imagine. You know, lastly, God redeems for a purpose. He redeems for a purpose that we might know and serve and worship the Lord. It's not just that God redeems Israel so that they can kind of have a great life and live happily ever after in Canaan. But God redeems them so that they might know him, know him deeply, and worship him and serve him. You know, in Exodus 4.22, God says, he says, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. Serve me. That word actually means to kind of be enslaved to me, to worship me, to serve me, to be yoked to me. God God is coming to redeem and to rescue so that his creatures, his people might come to a place of true worship in knowing and in serving him as the one true God and exalting him above all things. You know, as Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh the first time, Pharaoh says, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. You get that theme there of, I don't know the Lord. God exercises his his, um, nature of redeeming in order that he might be known and glorified and exalted and worshipped as the one true and only God that he is. So he educates Pharaoh. He educates Pharaoh and... and, uh, we read later on in, verse, in chapter 9, For this time I will send all my plagues on you and yourself and on your servants and your people, he's saying this to Pharaoh, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. God wants to be known as the one true God. He doesn't want to share his glory with another. And then he does the same thing for the people, his people, the people of Israel. In the plagues, Eugene Peterson calls the plagues a great exorcism. And they're the exorcism of a way of thinking that says Pharaoh and his ways is the way that history works. It's the way that the world works. And that the plagues are not just to demonstrate to Pharaoh that God is the one true God, but they're also to demonstrate to God's people that he is the true God who has power over creation and power over any other false God, any other power known in the world. And so God says that I want you, I've dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I've done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. God rescues and redeems that we would know that he is the true God, Yahweh, over all the earth. So this is the nature of our God. This is his defining moment of rescuing and redeeming and setting free that then gets fully, obviously fulfilled in his action, in his son Jesus, who comes to rescue us from a slavery that's deeper 
than any other slavery, a slavery to sin and death, and to set us free that we might know him, the Redeemer, and worship him as the true God. This is really good news. This is really good news. I don't know what conception of God that you have tonight in your life, but I want to encourage you to reflect upon the reality of God, Yahweh, as Redeemer.